1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And last week we dealt with a really challenging chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Wasn't so bad, was it, guys? Um, Today we're going to kind of continue in that vein. Um, These are often things, as I've said, that that churches don't like to talk about because they're, you know, kind of unpleasant. I mean, like, who wants to talk about sin, right? You didn't come, you didn't get up early this morning to come hear about sin, so nobody wants to hear about those things. Um, But the reality is this, and I want you to hear me. Until you understand, until you have a comprehension of your sinfulness, you will never have a comprehension of your salvation. You'll never appreciate and you'll never fully know what God has done for you in salvation if you don't know what God saved you from. If you don't know what God saved you from, you'll never know what he saved you to. And so, as we go through this letter, this book of the Bible, these are not just things, rules and regulations, or points uh, that reflect do's and don'ts. That's not what this is really about. So, the point of all of this, again, is identity. So we talked about this last week. Why did Paul say, hey, sexual immorality? And he starts talking about that, and he says, this brother who's unrepentant in his sin of sexual immorality, the problem is you're professing to be someone, and your life is not consistent with that. So there's a identity crisis going on here. And so the point of this teaching, the point, just like the point of the law, is not to give us a a formula to become righteous. Well, if I just stop doing that, then I'll be okay, right? No, that's not the point. The point is you're doing that, and if you're consistently doing that, that's revealing something about your true identity. And the question is, who are you really? What is your true identity? Are you just a person walking around with a mask and a facade on? Do you just wear a Christian costume, but that's not really who you are? Do you know that you can't live in a costume, and eventually the costume's going to come off? Eventually, you're going to be exposed. And this really is what Paul is talking about. It's identity. So let's read read a few verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just follow along as I read. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous, and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? That's pretty... I don't understand that. I don't have any way of comprehending that statement or that question. And the questions asked, like, you, you guys, under, you, you know this. You, don't you know that we're going to judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. 
Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? That's pretty tough, isn't it? At least it is for me. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, or revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you are sanctified but you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Father in heaven, we ask you this morning that you would, by your Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds. Let this word have entrance into our very being. Lord, let it be like a two-edged sword dividing down to the depths of bone and marrow, discerning the intents, the motives of our heart. And Lord, let it be that which would bring life to us, truth to us, freedom to us, transformation. By the power of your Spirit, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Okay, so again, the point here is one of identity. This isn't just a bunch of do's and don'ts. But because of who, listen church, because of who we are and because of whose we are. It's not, it's not just who we are, but who we belong to. We are who we are because we belong to Jesus. And remember, Jesus is our head. We're the body, he's the head. So Jesus is our identity. I have no identity apart from Christ. I'm a real person I have, I have unique fingerprints, just like all of you do. We are real persons. We have unique identities. But when I say, just like my little finger has a personality different than my thumb, different than my foot, different than my elbow, we would all agree, right? Your little finger's not like your elbow, right? But, but it's your little finger, and it's your elbow, and your little fingers and your elbows are wrapped up in the identity of of who? Of you. We are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bone. Our identity cannot be separated from Christ. He is our head. We are his body. So it's not about a bunch of do's and don'ts, it's, it's because of who we are and because of who we belong to. This is what Paul is saying. This is not the behavior or the lifestyle of someone consistent with someone who belongs to Christ. If you belong to Christ, if Christ is your identity, Christ is your life, then he is your lifestyle, right? 
You don't have one lifestyle on Sunday morning and then a different lifestyle on Saturday night or Friday night. Well, if you do, then you really need to ask yourself a question. And I'm not talking about legalism. You know, we get into legalism, and, and it's not about legalism. It's not about making sure you've got your checklist all checked off. That's not it. You, how many of you have a checklist at home, and, and, it, and it has remember to breathe, and you have to check that off to remember to breathe? Anybody got one of those? Now, you just kind of breathe on your own. Right? It's kind of natural, isn't it? Because that's the way God created you to function. You understand, you breathe because God created you to breathe. You don't have to think about breathing. You don't have to remember to breathe. You don't have to take a pill to help you remember to breathe. You don't put it on your calendar. You don't have it on your smartphone. Oh, I'm supposed to breathe at 1035. No, you just breathe, right? If you're like me, no one has to remind me to eat. I just want to pretty much eat all the time, you know? And so I know there's better times than other times to eat. But, you know, very rarely does anybody have to say, hey, you forgot to eat today. No, I, my body tells me, hey, feed me. I breathe. I blink. My heart beats. Those are natural functions. They're just part of our created order. It's who we're created to be. So what does Paul write in his letter in 2 Corinthians? He says, if any man be in Christ, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So in that new creation, in the reality of that new creation, because we are that creation, that new creation, created in the image of Christ, created and given the very life of Christ. I mean, when we were made a new creation in Christ, Christ gave us his life, changed our identity. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new, 1 Corinthians 5.17. So there's certain things that just are inherent with that created being and that created order. And this is what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying... You guys need to make sure you do all these things and then don't do these other things to make sure you make it to heaven one day because, you know, uh, unless you do all the right things in the right way, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if I remember correctly, Corinthians, you guys are professing to be new creations. You have told me the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That, That became a reality in your life then why are you living as though you're still in the old? Why are you acting like the world, taking your brothers to court with one another, to law with one another, going to the world to get judgment when you guys are going to judge angels and judgment has been committed to you? Remember at the end of chapter 5, this is what Paul says, what business is it of you, church, to judge the world? God will judge the world. But we are to judge those who profess to be part of the community the, the, of believers. If I name the name of Jesus and profess to be a child of God, a follower of, of Jesus, and I'm out living a life contrary to that, you guys have a responsibility to, to judge me in that. I didn't say condemn me. I didn't say stone me. To make a judgment and say, you know what, Pastor Jeff, his lifestyle is not lining up with the things he preaches and teaches on Sunday. 
When you look at me that way and you say, you know what, I don't think his life is lining up with what he's saying on Sunday, you're making a judgment there. Now, we want to say, don't judge me. We've totally misunderstood this whole thing. Or Paul writes in Galatians, if you see your brother trapped in sin, go to him in a spirit of meekness and gentleness and help him come out of that sin. We're going to make a judgment on that brother and say, I think that brother's trapped in sin. And the Bible commands us to go and not with condemnation, not pointing or wagging a finger, but in love and meekness and humility and gentleness. Why? Because be careful because you might fall into the same sin and temptation that he's in. Because remember what we said? But by the grace of God, we'd all be in that situation, right? We'd all be still trapped in sin and death, but by the grace of God. So we have no right to point a finger to condemn, but we do have an obligation if we truly love to look at our brother and say, brother, how can I help you? Not in a self-righteous, arrogant way, but in a humble and a meek way, if we truly love. So Paul is pointing out some realities that exist in the Corinthian church, and he says, what are you guys doing? Suing one another and going to worldly courts to, to, to try to get back at one another and to right wrongs. So don't go to the world for judgments concerning things pertaining to this life. Why not, Paul? Because in verse 6 he says it's shameful. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. I mean, when he's talking about this, man, he is talking about this is shameful. He says, I say this to your shame. Believers are not to go to the world for judgment. Believers will judge the world. So why do we seek the judgment of those least esteemed by the church to judge? Is there no wise among you who can sit and listen and help these two parties come to a... Today, in, you know, in the field of sociology and even the legal field, we call this, um, oh, just, just, what do they call that? It just like went out of my, like David Brooks says, the drawbridge just went up and the boats are passing under. Uh, conflict resolution. So uh, you go to court now, do you, you realize that a lot, of, a lot of courts, whether it's divorce or whatever, the judge, before he does anything, you are required by law to go to conflict resolution. What does that mean? Well, you go to a person qualified to sit and listen to your conflict and help you find a resolution to it. Conflict resolution didn't begin in the court system. It's it's here in the Bible. This is what Paul is saying. Isn't there a wise man? Isn't there someone among you that can sit and bring resolution to your conflict? Why are you going to the world? Don't do that. It's shameful. He also says that it's an utter failure. Verse 7 says, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. What is the utter failure that you go to law against one another? The utter failure is that 
it reached this point, and you believers, you you people who profess faith in Christ to to love one another, the command, love one another, even as I have loved you, Jesus said. Y'all have let it get to this point to where you're ready to go to court instead of being able to resolve the conflict among yourselves. You've already failed because you've not been able to resolve this conflict. So it's not just not just going to judgment before unbelievers, but the fact that you go to law against one another in the first place instead of being able to work things out with one another. So it's shameful. It's an, it's an utter failure. And then Paul makes this statement that really is, I believe, in our culture today, believer or non-believer, it's very hard for us to swallow. Look at verse 8. No, you yourselves do wrong... I'm sorry, verse 7. Now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. And he asked this question, why do you not rather accept wrong? In other words, why don't you just let yourself be wronged? Why don't you let yourself be cheated? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? Anybody have a difficulty with that? I do. Pastor Jeff does. I don't like that. Because you know why? Because I don't like to be cheated. And I don't like to be wrong. But Paul says it's better to just go ahead and accept the wrong, to be cheated, than to drag the name of Christ and the witness of Christ through the mud in the court system, letting the world, the very people that that you're going to judge one day, that's going to be judged by the God you serve, letting them judge you instead of you being able to resolve these things yourself. He said it's a shame and it's an utter failure. It's better that you just accept the wrong. It's better that you just be cheated. Yeah, but then I might lose something. Uh, see, this, this, where, this is where the rub kind of comes, right? And this is why we find it hard to give cheerfully to God because we've been conditioned in our culture to want to amass things and hang on to things. And we get sticky hands and it's very difficult for us to let go of things because we want to hold on. Paul says, why are you trying to hold on to your life? What did Jesus say? Lose your life. I mean, if I'm willing to lose my life, think about this, church. If I'm willing to lose my life, then what possession do I have? They take my coat. They take my shoes. So what Jesus said, remember, if, they, if, if the guy wants your, wants your tunic, go ahead and give him your shirt also. If he compels you to go one mile, go ahead and go a second mile. Not because you have to, but be, just because. It's not, not just even that that's a witness to that centurion or that person, but it's a sign that, you know what? I need to hold the things of this world very lightly. I need to be willing to let go of things. And I'll be honest with you, that's, that's difficult. Because everything around us enforces in us just the opposite. Everything does. When I was in the business world, 
I was a commission salesman for many years. And the rule of the game in a lot of places was you do whatever it takes to get ahead. It's called social Darwinism. And it's kind of like, hey, don't feel bad for that guy. Hey, if he's not strong enough to make it, then he needs to fail. If he lets you step on him, then go ahead and step on him. If that's what it takes for you to get to the place that you need to be. That often is the unspoken understanding in the world. Jesus said that is not what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God does not lord over. The kingdom of God doesn't climb the ladder of success. If you want to be great in the kingdom, he said, become the slave of all. If you want to be first, then become last. If you want to gain something, then be willing to let go of everything. This is what Paul is reflecting here when he says it's better that you be wronged, it's better that you be cheated. Because what are you trying to hold on to afterwards? Have you not already laid your life down? Have you not already been crucified with Christ? Is it not true that that you no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in you? Have you not already taken up your cross to follow Jesus? If you have been crucified with him, have lost your life, lost your identity to Jesus, then why are you trying to hang on to, to this thing? Just let it go. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. But here's what the Scripture is teaching us through this. Paul says, this is your identity. This is who you are now. We're not people that hold on at at all costs to things. We're not people that are willing to take our brother to law because we've been wronged or because we've been cheated. We are people who have been crucified, who have laid down our life. Our lives don't belong to ourselves any longer. They belong to Jesus. So if we can't resolve things amongst ourselves, then just let it go. If they insist on cheating you, let them cheat you. If they insist on wronging you, let them wrong you. Because the understanding is, you know what? They will either come to a place of repentance or or they're going to reap what they sow, but it's not your place to to right all wrongs, but it is our place to love. So Paul says, oh, no man except to love him. So love says, you know what, if you can't work it out and they're going to wrong you, then they wrong you. What are you going to do? Take them to court? Yeah, you're darn right I'm going to take them to court. Paul says, no, don't take them to court. Don't take them to court. Then he says this in verse 9, look at this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. How many of y'all have seen that movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I want you to close your eyes. I want you to picture the guy in the movie theater. Do not be deceived. (laughs) Don't be deceived. I mean, this is a clear warning that Paul is making here. Do not be deceived. Why does he say this? Now, I want you to see what Paul does in this verse here. 
First, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Question mark. Well, who's the unrighteous? Oh, it's that. I'll tell you who the unrighteous is. It's that guy that's sleeping with his father's wife. What a pervert, right? I mean, that guy is, he is so sinful. He is so disgusting. That, that's the unrighteous. Where did you just come from? Oh, oh, I just came from court. Hey, my brother was trying to cheat me over here. He was trying to rob from me, but I didn't let him do it. Man, I took him to court. I got the best lawyer in Corinth, and I won the case. And you know what? He's paying me now. Serves him right. And Paul says, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who's the unrighteous? Neither fornicators. Remember that word means sexually immoral. So whatever form of sexual immorality you want to put in there, just put it in there. Neither sexually immoral nor idolaters. Oh, obviously idolaters, right? I mean, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites nor thieves, oh, nor thieves, nor covetous. Oh. You mean every day I go out and I look at my neighbor's boat and I just want that boat and I just think about how much I wish it was mine? You mean that's a sin? Yeah, it's a sin. A boat wouldn't do it for me. I don't really care about having a boat, Okay. But maybe it would for you, right? I don't know. What is it? What is it that you covet? Well, I'm not as bad as that sexually immoral guy over there. You know, he's cheating on his wife. But, but you know, I just, I just want the car. Adultery, to covet, they're both unrighteous. Do you see what Paul is? Paul is painting a very similar picture that Jesus paints in his Sermon on the Mount. Lest you think you've got your righteousness all under control and you've, you've, you've become the professional manager of sin, Jesus said, I know you guys aren't out committing adultery and murdering each other, but you know what? Uh, you just thought it in your heart when you saw that woman walk by. I know that you and your brother have a conflict here, and I see the hatred in your heart toward him, and you just think he's the biggest fool there is. You just murdered your brother in your heart. You see, Jesus takes this demand for righteousness to a different level, a level that we cannot, are you listening to me, church? A level we cannot attain to. So we understand that the law was never given to us as a way to become righteous. The law was given to us to reveal to us that we need the righteousness of another. We need the righteousness of someone that's not our own. Paul said, oh, you think the guy sleeping with his father's wife is really unrighteous and really disgusting and we need to kick him out? Well, maybe we do if he's unrepentant in sin, but not for the reason you think so, not because you're so disgusted by him. But what really should be happening, Paul says, instead of you glorying about how great your church is and how gifted it is and how mega it is, you should be mourning instead of boasting, instead of being egotistically puffed up in your self-righteousness, you should be mourning because of the sin that exists in your ranks, and you shouldn't kick this brother out because 
he's disgusting and because you want to condemn him and judge him, but you should put him out because he's unrepentant. And that may be the only thing that causes him to stop and think and turn around and come back to the place he professes to be in. And when you put him out, if he doesn't come back, that means that it wasn't really a costume. That's really who he was. He really was an unrighteous man. But if he really is righteous and he's caught up in this sin, then your act of love will prick his heart and bring him to repentance. And that's what happened. But if, but if we're looking at him and thinking he's the most unrighteous while I'm over here taking my brother to court, because I was justly, I was truly wrong. I was truly cheated. I'm not making this thing up. He really did cheat me. He really did wrong me. I have every right to take him to court. No, you don't. And your unrighteousness in doing that is just as unrighteous as the guy sleeping with his father's wife, Paul says. Do not be deceived. That is the truth. I don't care whether you're a thief, covetous, drunkard, an extortionist. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul lists this, these unrighteous acts. These people, and he says, people who practice this type of lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he begins with sexually immoral people. He goes down the list, comes right down to extortionists. He pretty much covers the gamut to let these guys know that going to court is not okay even though you might think it is. And the point of all this is not about whether we go to court or don't go to court, what our sexual immorality is or is not. The point of all of this goes back to what's our identity. Is Christ our life? Is Christ our head? You know, I ask this quite frequently. If you take your driver's license out, what part of your body determines your identity? It's your head, right? I'm assuming that all of you, as I look at your heads and I look at your faces, that all the rest of your body is part of you. We can assume that, right? Because it's all connected in life together. So this is about identity. And Paul says, don't be deceived. It's all unrighteousness. And God doesn't discriminate when it comes to sin. It's all sin. And it all needs to be dealt with in the church. And it needs to be dealt with by the church. And that process of dealing with it, where does that begin? It begins right here in our hearts. So what's in your heart today? This is what Jesus was asking the people in the Sermon on the Mount. I see your actions, but what's in your heart? I know you haven't gone out and committed adultery, but what's in your heart? I know you haven't murdered anyone, but, but what's in your heart? Towards your brother or towards your sister, what's in your heart? Don't be deceived. Sin must be dealt with. 
And God reveals our sin, and He reveals the solution to our sin in the gospel. He is the solution. He's the answer. Now, look at verse 11. So he he brings him to this place where he just lays it out there, and he says, look, none of you guys are righteous. You're all wrong. And then in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Guess what? He's talking to the people that are acting unrighteously. He says, such were some of you. But you were, look at this, you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you once were darkness, but now you are light, and the Lord walk as children of light. You once were. That was once your identity, but no longer in Christ. As a son of disobedience, your identity was darkness, but as a child of God, your identity is light. Walk as children of light. But you were washed, he says. Revelation 1.5 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. How were we washed? You didn't wash yourself. You didn't cleanse yourself. It was impossible for you to wash yourself and cleanse yourself. You are washed by the precious blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And as children of God, we are washed from our sin in the precious blood of Christ. So as we live and move and have our being in Him, we do so washed by the blood of Christ, by grace through faith. He says, but you are sanctified. Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, but that, by that will, speaking of the will of God, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And verse 14 says, for by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We are set apart and we are being set apart. We are sanctified and we are being sanctified. We are holy and we are being conformed to holiness. Anybody got holiness down? Anybody who in here lives in an absolutely holy life? Never make a mistake. Never do anything unholy. Well, well, none of us, right? But yet the Bible says that we are already holy. How is that possible? Because it's not our holiness. It's his holiness. We are holy because he is holy. Because just like righteousness, he gave us his righteousness. He gave us his holiness. And now there is a process called sanctification where that holiness that is ours, that we possess, is being worked out in our life. So I learn how to walk more conformed to the holiness of God. I'm not saved because I'm holy. I'm holy because I'm saved. I'm not going through the process of being sanctified or becoming holy so that one day I have the guarantee I'm going to get into heaven. You know, I, it's kind of like the bar at the amusement park. As long as you're taller than 48 inches, you can ride the ride. There's not a magic bar up at the pearly gates that says, as long as you're taller than this line, you get to come in. 
but everybody else below that, well, you just didn't reach that level of holiness. No, that's not how it works. Because if that was how it works, then we're saved by works and we're not saved by works. But because we are saved, we are being made holy. We are being sanctified. And since we are sanctified, since Christ is our identity and he is our life, then that's how we should walk and live out our life, right? We don't do it in our own strength. We do it by the power of the Spirit. We do it because of the completed work of Christ. So all who are and all who are being sanctified are sanctified by faith in Christ. Acts 26, 18. By the Spirit of God, Romans 15, 16. And where does that sanctification take place? In Christ. Who is our sanctification? 1 Corinthians 1.30. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Romans 3.24. Being justified freely by His grace. I love the word freely there. Not begrudgingly, not sparingly, not, but freely. God didn't just give us a little bit of grace. You know, my grace is really valuable. I just don't give it out to everybody. You know, and I'm not sure you're worthy of very much of it, so I'm going to give you a little bit and see how you do with it. No. That's the way we live, and that's the way we often think. No, we were justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 28, therefore we conclude. It's important. Paul's making a conclusion And we should come to and must come to the same conclusion. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Just if I'd never sinned. Justified. I stand guilty, but I have been justified. My guilt is no more. Because it was taken away by Jesus Christ. When the Bible talks about peace with God, I saw this quote, Caleb posted this, I thought it was really good. When the Bible talks about peace with God, it's not talking about an inner tranquility, rather the end of hostility. You know why they send a chaplain or a priest to be with the death row prisoner before they inject them with the lethal injection? Because as they are lethally injected, they want to, to the best of their ability, make sure that this prisoner has an inner tranquility and a peace about what's fixing to happen. And you know what? He may. But the reality is, he's going to die. They're going to kill him for the crime he committed. Peace with God is not that chaplain saying, it's going to be okay. They're fixing to inject you and kill you and punish you for the crime you committed and you know you deserve to die, but, but I just want you to have peace as you get ready to leave this life and go into the next one. That, that's not, the, no. The, the end of hostility is, you know what? I deserve to die, but I'm not going to go to death row because Jesus has delivered me from death. Jesus has delivered me from the judgment, not because I deserve it, but freely by his grace that he poured out on my behalf. Now, 
I have peace with God. Do you get it? Do you get the difference? So this is, this is the solution to our sin. Being washed, being sanctified, being justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. How do we do that? We do that by grace through faith in Him. So the point of Paul's teaching as we've gone through these 11 verses, the point of his teaching here and the point of all the teaching of Scripture, listen to me, church, is to reveal a life and a lifestyle to us. It's to remind us of our identity. That Christ is our life and so he is our lifestyle. These are not simply formulas for us to live by that can condemn or convict us. They are truths that are to transform the way that we live, the way that we move, the way that we have our very being. That being conformed to Christ and and who Christ is and the life of Christ becomes just as natural as the life that you have right now. Just as natural as breathing or as eating or as sleeping or doing the things that you do without having to think about them. But these aren't obligations and tasks that we must do or God's going to punish us if we don't. These are things that we do because this is who we have become by grace, through faith, by the new birth in Jesus Christ. These truths aren't just subject matter for Sunday morning Bible study or for my preaching or for my teaching, so I've got something to talk about from this pulpit. I'm talking to you about your life. Who are you? Not just in what you say, but who are you and how you live your life. Without saying a word, the person that you rub up next to in the world, the person you work next to in the world, the person you're interacting with in the world, regardless of where you are, without saying a word, by your actions, by your deeds, by your demeanor, or maybe by your words, are they going to know who you are? Are they going to make an assumption that is wrong? Or is it right? Are you wearing a costume and you know it's not real? Or have you lived in the costume so long that you've lost touch with reality? And you've deceived yourself. This is why Paul says, do not be deceived. Do you realize how easy it is to live, go through life and deceive ourselves into thinking that we're someone that we're really not? Or we're something that we're really not? And the Bible warns us, don't be deceived. And God wants to rip the costume off. He wants to expose us, not to embarrass us, not to make us feel bad, but to save us to save us because he cares that much about us. And he proved that when he sent his son to die on a cross for us. He paid the highest price for your salvation. Do you realize that God, God is God. He could have He could have set this system up any way that he wanted to, but he chose to pay the highest 
price for your salvation. He chose to do that. You didn't choose that. He chose that. He chose to pay the highest price for your salvation. And out of that great love that he demonstrated in sending his son and his son dying for us, out of that great love, he loves you enough, he loves me enough that he wants to expose and reveal truth so that that truth can set you free. There is nothing more important to us, or there should be nothing more important to us than Christ who is our life. In his gospel, the only message that has the power to save us. You were not created for your own purpose. You were created for his purpose. And his purpose for you as a child of God is going to be fulfilled through your salvation. It's not just your ticket to heaven so that you can just live with assurance that one day I'm not going to burn in hell. It's living with the sense that I was created for purpose. I exist for purpose. I live for purpose. I'm where I am for a purpose. Listen, I, I am not afraid to say whether this is your first time or you've been here for years, you're here today for a purpose. I don't know what it is, but God does. You may hear this message and never come back or you may hear what God is saying and you can let, not my words, but let the word of God change you. Maybe you've sat here week in, week out for years. You say, oh, Pastor Jeff, he's always talking about the same things, you know, this transformation and this, all this stuff. Kind of like Paul, I don't have another message. My repertoire is very limited, okay? Sorry. Because until the church, until the body of Christ gets this reality, until we begin to cry out for the Holy Spirit to bring real change and real transformation in our hearts, does your heart break for the people that are dying and going to hell? Does your heart break for the lost? I want it to. God wants it to. And it begins by our hearts being changed. Let's all stand. I'm going to pray a prayer of dismissal. And after that prayer... If you're here today and you, maybe you have a question about something we've talked about, maybe you have a point of prayer that you would like someone to pray with you concerning. Maybe say, you know what, I just, I, I want God to have his way in my life and I just want you to pray with me and agree with me. There's no magic in, in our prayers. There's power in prayer and there's power in agreement. It's God's power. Father, I lift up this congregation to you. All of our hearts and all of our minds, God. 
And I ask that you would touch us, that you would do a work in us by your Spirit. That, God, we wouldn't look for another formula or another gimmick or another plan to try to get motivated or to try to get jump-started. Father, I pray that we would just come to the end of all of those things. And from the very depths of our heart, we would just ask you to change us, to give us a heart that burns with a passion and a love for you. Give us a heart, God, that loves the sinner, that loves those lost and without Christ. Give us a heart, God, that loves one another in spite of our flaws, regardless of our failings, whether they be occasional or whether they be habitual. God, we wouldn't give up on each other. We wouldn't give up on ourselves. More importantly, God, that we would look to you and and know that there's nothing impossible with you. That at any moment, God, you, you could and we should desire to be changed by your Spirit, transformed by the power of God so that we're not conformed to this world, but we truly are transformed and our minds are being renewed to your image to your likeness, to your ways. Lord, I'm asking you to do that in my heart, in my mind. I'm asking you to do that in this congregation. I'm asking you, God, to put a fire in our bones that we would be like those apostles who could not keep silent about Jesus. Lord, not in an obnoxious way, but that we would realize that our greatest ministry is not what happens on two hours in a Sunday morning, but Lord, what happens when we go and we live our life through our jobs and through our families and through our recreation? That's the other 166 hours of the week that are really the most important in terms of reaching our world. God, give us that revelation. And help us to be children of light that walk as such. We once were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. God, help us walk as children of light. For your glory, we ask this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.